Welcome to Michael's Record Collection, where we always begin the day with a friendly voice, a companion unobtrusive. You can follow Michael's Record Collection on social media. It's just at Mike's Records on Twitter and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. I'd also love to hear from you, so drop me a line and let me know how I'm doing at Collection at gmail.com. This is episode number 48, and I am diving into an essential album of the 1980s, Rio by Duran Duran. To do that, I enlisted the help of author Annie Zaleski, who literally wrote the book on this album. Annie's book about Rio came out last year for 33 and a third books, and she tells the complete story of this outstanding album in the book. It's a great read. I recommend it. In fact, I recommend basically anything on 33 and a third books. There's no need to put this off. Let's get right into my discussion with Annie about her background and Duran Duran's Rio album. Here we go. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm very excited to have with me for this episode author Annie Zaleski, uh, the writer of this book. Yay, about Duran I don't have one with me. Oh, I do have one. Actually, wait, we can match. Here we go. Perfect. Annie, how you doing? I'm good. I, I'm not bad. Easing into 2022 and uh, can't complain. I know a lot of people have complained about um, 2021 and I'm like, but 2021 was a cakewalk compared to 2020. So you know. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if we're just getting used to it, maybe. I think we're just getting used to it. It's it's all about, you know, comparison. Like, you know, you said 2020, nothing could be as worse as that. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> but thank you for your time. I appreciate that. Um, we're here to talk a little bit about your book. We're going to talk a little bit about Duran Duran today. Uh, one of my favorite bands from the 80s. I'm sure it's one of yours as well, if not your most favorite. I will, we'll get into that. But I, I want to start off with a question. For you as a writer, what what did you gravitate towards first, music or writing? That's a really good question, actually writing. Um, I was the type of kid who was like reading, you know, devouring books as a kid. I learned to read pretty early. And then by the time I reached elementary school, it was like the Little House on the Prairie books. And I really kind of branched out. Like I remember being in second grade, we had to do a writing assignment, a creative writing assignment, and everybody did like paragraphs. And I had like four paragraph chapters. I was like very ambitious even as a kid. Um, so yeah, so I was definitely into writing first. Okay, you were creating narratives already. Exactly. No one asked for it, but I was like, I was there. Yeah, I was, and I became a writer later, but my my first inclination in school was to take the easy way out. So it was like, you know, if, if we were doing vocabulary sentences and the word was emphatically, I would say, I would write something like, emphatically, he died. <laughs> you know, and then I would get in trouble. You can't just put he died for every, you know. <laughs> but you know, so, it's, it's that fit though, you know, like it's, you know, that they were, you know, you technically did the assignment. That's right. And I was, I was all about <laughs> doing the minimal technically correct assignment at the time. So, so your first song or album that you gravitated towards, do you remember the first song that really stuck out to you and, and stuck in your head or, or that you maybe consider your first favorite song? It's a good question. Um, when I was a kid, like my parents were big music fans. So I always grew up listening to music. Like I very much have like a very vivid memory of 
um, my mom playing or hearing, you know, Laura Branigan's Gloria. So, you know, that was very, very early 80s, um, you know, and she liked the chorus line and things like that. So it's very kind of upbeat music. When I started getting into music, I started really getting into oldies, weirdly enough, like 50s and 60s music. Um, when I like, I was super into the Beach Boys as a kid, um, you know, obviously like the Beatles a little bit later, but I really, really liked the Beach Boys. And so I think that was kind of like my first formative stuff. Um, I had some people make me some mixtapes too, like the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. And, uh, you know, just some, you know, uh, there was a radio station here called, excuse me, WMJI. And they did a lot of, they, they had some like, contemporary music, but I think they also did some, you know, 50s music. McDonald's had this like tape, like this like tape series of like oldies. And I ended up getting it. And like, I love that tape. It had like, you know, um, I can't, can't even remember who's on it now, but just like very vintage stuff like that. And there was this, I, I now this is a good story because when I was in second grade, I got my parents gave me money to buy people Christmas presents and I went to a store and things like that. And instead, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, but instead of buying like everyone else gifts, I made sure I saved some money to buy myself a gift. And it was something called the California sounds of the sixties tape. So it was like the birds and Jan and Dean and people like that. And so yeah. that was, I think my first like favorite stuff. So, I mean, really it was a lot of harmonies, very strong melodies, pop songwriting. If you if you think about the characteristics, that's what I really gravitated toward early on. I'm pretty sure we had a copy of that in our house, but I know I remember listening to that record at some point and I don't remember if it was ours or if I listened to it at a friend's house, but I remember that um, that album. So you and and I've had your husband, Matt Wardlaw on the show. He, he works with Ultimate Cra uh, Classic Rock and we talked a little bit about Genesis, our our shared concert experiences. And I'm curious as to, you know, two couples that, you know, you're, you write, you listen to music. How do you determine what you listen to in the car? Uh, it, it depends on the day. Um, you know, sometimes if we're in the car, Matt's listening to something for work because he's going to be interviewing somebody or he just interviewed someone. So he'll put stuff on. I'm like, that's totally fine. Um, you know, sometimes I'm like, hey, I got this thing. We should listen to this. You know, it's cool. Um, and it really all depends. You know, he tends to because he tends to drive. And so he, you know, puts on the music. And sometimes if I'm like, yeah, I really don't want to listen to this right now, then we'll change it. But a lot of other times I'm just like, that's totally fine. You know, we might listen to the radio, we might listen to stuff. You know, it, it really, it, it just varies wildly. He and I both have very eclectic taste in music. So it's really hard to predict what we might be listening to on a given day. That's uh, kind of whatever sort of crossed our path. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk about Duran Duran. I wondered what your Duran Duran origin story was. How <laughs> did you, how did you come across them? What was the first thing you remember about Duran Duran? I like this. This is like my like like comic book hero origin story. I yeah. love it. Um, I think, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've been asked this a lot and I kind of pinpointed to it was the early 90s. Um, so I'm a little bit younger. And so I came to Duran Duran in the early 90s when they were when the wedding album came out. Um, sure. We had a modern rock station here called WENZ in Cleveland that played a ton of stuff on like Ordinary World and Come Undone and I think too much information they played. But at the same time, they played Duran Duran's 80s stuff. So the station was so cool. Like a lot of alternative stations early on in the 90s, there was a lot of modern stuff, but then they played a ton of 80s stuff. So I came to a lot of that music at the same time as I did, you know, contemporary music. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure I, I like, you know, they would play Hungry Like the Wolf or Rio or something like that. 
And I think, and I, I watched a lot of MTV and VH1 as a kid. And I, I, I would wager, I don't have a distinct memory, but I would wager that VH1 probably also played some of the vintage Duran Duran videos. So yeah. I think it was just kind of the fact that there was so much of that music and culture and content just kind of floating around at the same time. Um, I came to things at the same time. Um, you know, I remember I got Decade as, you know, when I was in high school, which was their kind of their greatest hits record that came out mm-hmm. and, you know, which had everything. And so like, I taped it. And so, you know, there was, there was enough on there that I'm like, okay, I heard all this music somehow. So I would imagine it was probably the radio. How did you become so um, engaged with the Rio album in particular that you wanted to write about it? So I, so that was one of the records that I really gravitated toward in high school, you know, so I had the greatest hits record, but I also had Rio and, you know, I can't tell you what it is about the record I liked at the time, but I remember like very distinctly being a teenager and just loving that record. Just, mm-hmm. I think it was just, you know, everything about the music. I love Save a Prayer because, you know, as a teenager, it was like, you know, very, you know, now as an adult, I know what it's about, but as a teenager, I was like, this is such a romantic song. It's so mm-hmm. melancholy and I loved it. the singles too and so you know I like the singles and things like that but I just really gravitated toward the music I like singing along with it kind of going back to the harmony and, and melody it was so much fun to sing along to there was so much like kind of moodiness going on there um, I really viewed Duran Duran as sort of you know on the same level as a lot of the other 80s British bands um, you know Thompson Twins, Psychedelic Furs, uh, Howard Jones and things like that it was all kind of of a piece so I've always just really gravitated toward the record. And as I got older and I kind of did some research and, you know, heard a little bit more, uh, you know, read a little bit more about it, it had a really good backstory. Um, you know, I guess I should back up and say one of the, the things I remember vividly is that Rio seemed very hard to find on CD in the 90s. You know, I had it, I bought a cheap copy for like two bucks on vinyl. I had a tape that I got for like a quarter. So, you know, I was able to find it in those formats, but I remember because I, you know, I had CDs and it was, they were very hard to find. So I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. So it was also kind of mysterious in that sense. And so then fast forward, when I started doing research, yeah, Rio just had a really interesting backstory. You know, it was very popular in the UK at first, but when it was released in the US, it was pretty much like a non-starter. And it took a lot of remixes and it took a lot of time and a lot of pushing to kind of like, you know, get the record a success. And so, I mean, honestly, it was almost kind of a literary thing. You know, it's, there's this like, you know, uh, you have something that's, you know, obviously a wonderful work of art and people haven't discovered it. How do you get it from point A to point B? You know, what goes into that? 
So I just thought that it had a really interesting backstory. And so that as well, in addition to just being like, you know, a, a perfect record and having the artistic element and the video element, like it was just a lot of things that kind of came together. Yeah. You know, you, you were obviously were very interested in writing. You wanted to become a writer at some point. When was that decision made? And then when was the decision made that you wanted to write about music? So both things very early on, um, I started kind of doing journalism in junior high. And it's funny because my focus then was sports. Um, I was always a really big sports fan and I'm still into sports. And so I wrote a lot about sports, you mm -hmm. know, which is very, and I had a really wonderful journalism teacher who was extremely, extremely supportive of, of me and encouraged me to kind of write. And, uh, you know, and I, I think about him often, he passed away a few years ago, but, you know, I think about how encouraging he was, you know, when I was like some you know, I don't even know, like 13 year old. And so, and that really kind of set me on my path. I started wanting to write about music in high school. I started reading music magazines, you know, Rolling Stone and Spin and Alternative Press. And I basically, I was like, this is really interesting. I got really interested in it. Um, I've read the British music magazines too. So I started an entertainment section in my high school newspaper because I was editor in chief. So I was like, I I'm in charge. We're going to do this. <laughs> so uh, that was, that was kind of put me on my path. And then right. I wrote for my college paper and then I got an internship. And so honestly, I've been writing professionally since I was about 19, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, so I started really early and I just kind of you know, it was a lot of hard work and it's been, you know, kind of a long time doing that. And I branched out to do other things, but, you know, writing about music is my first passion. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I was, um, I was in college, not really knowing what I was going to do with my life after getting bad grades in my computer science class, uh, pre pre classes. And I went into English and I was become, I was like, oh, I'll just be an English teacher. And then I wasn't enjoying the student teaching thing. And so I went and talked to a counselor and they said, well, what are you good at? And I said, I, I think I'm good with the language I can write. He said, what do you like to do? I was like, well, I don't know. What, what are you doing on Saturday? I'm, well, I'm going to the football game. Oh, you like sports? Yeah. He goes, why don't you write about sports? I'm like, and then a light bulb went off. Like, nice. you can do that? <laughs> That's a thing that people do. And, you know, obviously I knew there was sports writing but i never even considered it as a career option until until then and and um when i worked for the the student paper at ohio state i we had to do certain number of off desk stories uh to get our grade and one of the stories i i went to the arts uh editor and i said can i do a concert review or something and he sent me out to this bar to see this Pink Floyd cover band. It was actually uh, a cover band that did mostly Pink Floyd, but some other covers as well. And it was my first run in with a copy editor because I wrote, uh, I was writing about the set and uh, I was writing about them playing pigs, three different ones is in parentheses is the name of the, of the song. And the copy editor changed the, the name of the song to three different pigs. Oh no! <laughs> I, was like, I was like, you, oh, you can't. It was in the paper that way. And I was like, I can't even use this as a clip now. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was fun. Uh, it's fun to write about music. So now I'm, I'm writing a newsletter and, uh, and doing this show. And you are your own copy editor. So those I things am. are through. Exactly. I yeah. am. And, and now I, I have a, I have a much deeper appreciation after going through the copy editing class and, uh, and editing various publications along the way. <laughs> and I, I find that I'm a much better editor of other people's work than my own. I think most people probably are. I think you're right, because you're so close to kind of what you're writing. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you see what someone else writes, you can kind of see 
you, you see the errors more, they stand out more. And it, when you're mm -hmm. writing something for yourself, it, you're just so close to it. It's in your head, you, you know what you meant to say. And so it looks that way to you, but it might not read that way to someone else. Exactly. Yeah. So 33 and a third books. Yes. How does how does one become a writer for 33 and a third? So this is a series and basically it's, it's, it's simple and it's not. So every so often they have a call for pitches. They put out, they have a blog and they say, we're opening up the kind of the proposal process. So mm -hmm. it's basically like an RFP. If anyone's in business, that's basically what it is. Yeah. Um, and they have a very specific, um, you know, basically like template. They're like, here's what we want you to put in. Here's the things you want you to include. And you basically have that application to convince them why you should do a book. And so that's that's basically how it is. And so I've pitched this, I started pitching Rio in 2007. Like I found, uh, you know, I found basically like an email that I had sent to them where I had proposal mm -hmm. and I pitched it again in 2009 and neither time were successful. And I basically put it on the shelf for a while because, you know, I was just like, oh, you know, I don't have time to do this. And, you know, this is kind of discouraging. Um, but they opened it back up again in 2018. And I was like, and I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it again, but a friend of I were uh, trading messages and, you know, he was like, oh, I don't know, I might do it. And, you know, I said, oh, I don't know. And then he messaged me a couple of days before the deadlines, like, ah, I decided not to do it. And I was like, but then I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. Because I'm just like, I, you know what, I'm going to be so upset if someone else pitched this book and got to do it and it wasn't me because I had been wanting to do this for so long. <laughs> yeah. So I sat down with the, you know, the benefit of I have a deadline. I have, you know, 36 hours. Let's go. And, you know, I kind of I took my old, old proposal and ripped it up and, you know, made it a little better and wrote things. And it's a proposal. And I found out like in early I think it was early 2019 that I got it. I was like I got an email. I was like shaking. It was like. Oh my God, this is amazing. I was like blown away because I'd been wanting, again, wanting to do this for so long and I'd loved the record for so long. So like I tell people, it's like a dream come true and it kind of is. So, so how long did it take to write? So that was, I mean, it was a lengthy process. Um, you know, the first thing I did was after it kind of got announced was um, I approached the band to see if they'd be willing to sit for some interviews and do interviews with me um, mm -hmm. or, you know, via phone. And so, you know, that was kind of like my first step. And so that was like mid late 2019. So I started doing that. And then, you know, that was kind of going to kind of like build, you know, build the framework around, um, you know, the nice thing is that when you had to put together this proposal, you had to put together a table of contents, you know, kind of like, here's what I'm going to cover here's some major points I want to do. You had to do five, you know, sample pages. Mm -hmm. So I was, I, I had a pretty good head start. It wasn't like you had just a blank page. Right. It was like, all right, well, I have a structure and I need to fill this in. So um, I started off doing some interviews and then, you know, basically the pandemic hit in early 2020. And so that luckily I didn't have anywhere to go. I stayed at home. And so I worked for, I mean, I would say, I think I turned in the book mid-October and so I was really it was like a good eight months of like interviewing and writing and things like that um but I had obviously been thinking about it for so much longer than that and I did mm -hmm. a couple interviews in like late early late 2019 yeah so it was probably a good year and then you when you go you know factor in editing and stuff like that like it was probably a good year and a half to kind of finish the book yeah that doesn't sound like a long time for a book I mean this this these books aren't terribly long in terms of pages like i think right. this is 300 or not even it's 100 and some odd pages 
but it's very dense. There's like a lot of information packed into this small package. Like when I picked it up, I'm like, oh, I'm going to read this in like an hour. And it, it took me, you know, probably a week to work through it, even though, you know, it's not very long because I was, there was just so much information in here. And you can tell by the, the, you know, the, the index in the back that there's a lot of research lot that went into that. <laughs> like how much time did you spend scouring the internet? Did you need to go to a library? I mean, that's, you know, that's the, I mean, luckily so much of the stuff was online because basically libraries were unavailable, like, mm. you know, in, in person, brick and mortar because of the pandemic. And so, you know, most of the stuff I accessed, you know, some of the stuff I, some of the stuff we had, like we had some of the books here, luckily, so I didn't need to get them. And, you know, I could order a couple of things online, but a lot of it was basically online research. You know, the one really, really nice thing about Duran Duran fans is our archivists. So there is, there are very, very few things, you know, in, in terms of appearances the band have made that I haven't been able to find, you know, even, you know, early, early on. And so there's a lot of information there. Um, and I had been, you know, my husband and I had been collecting Duran Duran stuff for years too. So we had a pretty good base of things. Like we didn't need to go out and buy a copy of the record. We had, yeah. you know, multiple copies. Um, so luckily we kind of had a head start there, but yeah, it was, luckily there's just so much stuff online now that people have really, um, kind of digitized and put up there because it was, it was utterly, utterly invaluable. Who was the easiest to talk to from the band? I mean, all of them are honestly really easy to talk to. Yeah. Um, they are, you know, I, I've said this in, in other interviews, but they are so self-aware about not just what makes their music tick, but kind of how Duran Duran fits in the culture. They're extremely savvy and they're extremely uh, perceptive about that. And so that makes for mm -hmm. really interesting interviews. I mean, you listen to like, you know, John Taylor, especially, you know, he grew up loving all the British music magazines and is such a fan. You know, he's, uh, you know, like you can tell, you know, when you see him do interviews with other people, like he, he really gets it. He really understands, you know, the, you know, basically, uh, you know, what makes, you know, what, what's interesting for interviews. He's really, really good at that. And part of that also is, you know, they've done so many over the years. And so they're yeah. very reasoned about it, but um, they're very thoughtful and very forthcoming. Um, and, you know, and you don't get that with a lot of artists, you know, yeah. there's a lot of artists who, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you've come across that, that it's like, oh, well, we're going to do the same thing. You know, they're very, very, and, and you can see that with any of the interviews they've done for the new record they put out last year too, which is so good. You know, mm -hmm. they're all very, very thoughtful. And, you know, it doesn't seem like, even if they're doing 50 interviews, it doesn't show. It doesn't, it's not like, you know, a tired type thing. Like it's all very fresh and engaged and like that's that's a skill and but that also shows the passion they have for music mm -hmm. that, that really really stood out i think and what struck me about uh reading the story about the making of this record and, and sort of the backstory a little bit about duran duran is that this is a band that always kind of knew where they wanted to go they they wanted to be the biggest band in the world they wanted they had a pretty good idea of how to get there not maybe initially but they kind of worked at picking that knowledge up as they went so that they could get to that point. And everything they did was with an eye on the end game. It, it, it was, yeah. it was so different than how a lot of pop and rock bands are. And that's a hundred percent true. And I think that's a lot of the reason why um, they became so successful 
is that they were all working together. You know, they mm -hmm. were all working, kind of going in the same direction. Everybody was very focused on the end goal. And, you know, and that was when you have a group of people and that's as, you know, anyone in the working in the world will know having a group of people all working like that is also very rare. You know, everyone, you know, some, there's always someone who's an outlier. There's always someone who's off doing his own thing. And they were just, had such great chemistry and they were so focused and so ambitious. They were, they were off, they were all really unified. And I think that's a big reason for their success. And I think it's a big reason why the music is, you know, held up so well and sounded so great because mm -hmm. they were all really focused on making the best music possible, getting the best performances out of each other and just really being creative. And they all had different, you know, little influences they kind of put together and, you know, it just, it just worked, you know, it's one of those things you can't explain when you get yeah. the right combination of people and it just works. It's like, you just go with it because you can't question it. What was the uh, most surprising or, or maybe the best story that you unearthed when you were researching this book? <sighs> A few things. Um, I love John Taylor told me that uh, guitarist Andy Taylor was in the bar the night uh, Brian Johnson found out he got the ACDC gig back in the day and like Brian apparently bought everyone around in the bar. <laughs> I would have like, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But which is just about like Andy was a big ACDC fan. So he was just like, this is incredible. You know, this is amazing because he was able to, it was really like, here's a rock star. Like this is attainable. He's right in front of me. So I thought that that was one of the coolest stories. And then, you know, just some of the, um, you know, vintage like articles and things I dug up were pretty great. You know, like mm -hmm. Cashbox had a photo of the band meeting Andy Warhol in, in his studio, which was a very momentous kind of meeting. And, yeah. and like Billboard did a, uh, you know, they got so much press in late 81 for the girls on film video. You know, Billboard did a story on it. The Associated Press did stories. And so there was just some pretty funny kind of early, early stuff out there too, just about like, oh, all right. You know, they, they were they were making waves. They weren't, you know, they were getting a little <laughs> bit of attention. Uh, it was cool. I always thought Andy was the the most underrated musician in that band in terms of, of what he brought to the table. And I was kind of mad we didn't get more Power Station actually. <laughs> Power Station's awesome. I mean, I I, yeah, like that's, you know, he is an incredible musician. And I think, you know, that's one of the things, you know, like zeroing in on the record. It's 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 so remarkable on, on Rio, how everybody's kind of parts kind of fit together. And like you hear his little guitar parts come in and, you know, what he's doing and like you, you know, watch live bootlegs and stuff like that. And like, mm -hmm. it's really incredible. Like he was, I mean, he was the most experienced one. Um, and, but he was really good at taking the lead where need be and also just kind of, you know, holding back where, where need be too, which is like the sign of like, you know, this is a, you know, musician. And then, I mean, he went on to do so much amazing stuff to play on Belinda Carlisle singles, you know, his solo mm -hmm. stuff. He's been playing with Reef, which is so cool. And he's, you know, he's just such a phenomenal guitarist. So how many copies do you have of Rio in various formats? I'm glad you asked that. So I have eight vinyl copies. Um, mm -hmm. I have, I, we just got another okay. CD. So I have three CD versions because there's the 1990, there's the uh, 2009 deluxe edition. There is a 2001 reissue. And then there's the one from the nineties. I don't know if I, or is it the eighties one? I, I have one of the earlier ones. I think it was, I think it might be the mid eighties one. So I have like the three CD versions and then I have a cassette. Okay. And those are just mine. Um, Matt may have a copy of Rio somewhere. I'm not sure, but those, so that's, what is that? That's three 
11, so it's 12. And I'm sure I have some, another one I've forgotten. Yeah. I remember getting it on cassette from the, uh, I believe it was the BMG music club. Uh, as I was, you know, ripping off music clubs left and right <laughs> back in those days. But this album came out, uh, it was released worldwide on May 10th, 1982 on EMI Records. And it was remixed and re-released in the U.S. in November of 82. Why? So this was, uh, this is, this is kind of the crucial backstory to the record. So it came out and the sound of the record just wasn't necessarily like what was fitting with U.S. radio, you mm -hmm. know? So at the time, basically getting a radio hit was what bands needed to do. That was, that was the pathway to success. And at that time, you know, FM radio was, or, you know, or just rock radio was like Rush and Van Halen and Journey and all these bands who don't really sound a ton like Duran Duran, you know, who were these well-dressed men from England with great sense who loved David Bowie. You know, Roxy Music's Avalon was on the charts, um, but they, they, that was like the only like kind of kindred spirit. Mm -hmm. So they basically didn't fit in. They were doing dance music. And so they ended up getting uh, David Kirschenbaum who had discovered Joe Jackson and had worked with some of the, some other British bands to do a remix of, of basically the first half of the record, um, the first mm -hmm. side of the record, I mean. And so he basically remixed it. So it was a little more suited to rock radio. And it's funny because it was very subtle. You know, it's not like it was dramatic remixes. You know, I think Simon's vocals are higher in the mix and Andy's guitars are higher in the mix. Keyboards are a little bit more in the background. It's a little punchier and that's really it. And so, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, he basically did a remix of that. And so, and so that, that's one of the reasons. So they basically, you know, they had this version of Rio. So David ended up remixing the whole first side and they reissued the record. Um, along with that, in September of 82, um, the Carnival EP came out. Now, this was basically a four song EP that was mm -hmm. catered to dance floors. And so they had kind of these so-called night versions Duran Duran did. They had a couple of Bomb remixes and then these extended ones they love doing. Um, if, if anyone has seen like their 1984 tour, they do a really extended version of Girls on Film at the end. That's the night version, it's for clubs. And that ended up also getting attention. Um, and so there was a version of Hungry Like the Wolf that was the night version along with the David Kirschenbaum Hungry Like the Wolf. So what ended up happening is that they reissued the record once. They issued, reissued the record again with the David Kirschenbaum mixes on the first side, except they subbed in the night version of Hungry Like the Wolf. And they, they reissued the record again. And they reissued the single and the A side and the B side were David Kirschenbaum's mix and the, the night version mix. You basically need like, it, it's it's like trying to keep track of this stuff is like, you know, it's like the, the GIF of the guy, like, you know, on the whiteboard, because it, it, it's ridiculously <laughs> yeah. confusing. And and to add, you know, to muddle the waters further, the second pressing, the, uh, the label is mispressed. So the label of that looks like it's the first pressing. So basically what happened is that radio just like didn't pick up on it but when they finally heard some remixes they were like yeah this is this is good and so by the time like when thanksgiving hit in 82 hungry like the wolf finally started taking off <laughs> Can't you breathe? 
how would somebody know if they had the original 82 mix or the remix in 82? I'm glad you asked that. So, um, cause I have, I have been trying to buy actual first pressings of the U S mix. Cause I, 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 I have a record club version as well. The, the vinyl, um, basically it's the length of hungry, like the wolf will tell you. So the early okay. pressings hungry, like the wolf's below four minutes. And if you get pressings like the, the third pressing, which is the one that's the most common is they have longer track listings. And so hungry, like the wolf, I think it's like five minutes and 14 seconds. So that that's that's kind of the trick um, mm -hmm. for the second and the third pressing. So you almost you almost have to listen to it. You have to find that there's some there's one there's a different promo sticker on the second pressing. So if you can find a uh, 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 like a sealed copy, then you'll know it's the second pressing. But I mean, it's I, I was having a conversation just today about a Planet Earth 12 inch that's mispressed. Like it's 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 you to keep track of this stuff. It's a lot. Yeah, well, luckily we have the internet because yes. then someone else can worry about keeping track of it. And you exactly. Can just, okay, what do I need? That's what I need. Okay, let me go yeah, find that. Exactly. <laughs> this is an album that peaked at number six on the Billboard 200 album chart in March of 83 here in the U.S. Remained on the charts for 129 weeks and certified double platinum in the U.S. and Canada, platinum in Australia, the U.K. and New Zealand and gold in Finland seem to do well in english speaking countries yeah and but you know what though they are also duran duran is extremely popular in um brazil they're huge in brazil i could see that and, and italy actually those are those are two um you know one of the nicest and the coolest things about putting out this book is i've met fans from all over the world and you know and especially like italy and and brazil that there's been a lot of people being like this is so great which is cool Personnel, uh, obviously, Simon LeBon on lead vocals, Vibraphone on New Religion, and Ocarina on The Chauffeur. Yep. I don't know what an Ocarina is, but I'm sure it sounds lovely. <laughs> so it's a little it's a little percussion instrument. Um, okay. You know, you kind of, um, you, it's basically, it's like kind of like like shell or oval and you kind of blow into it. It's, it's almost, it's like, um, you know, I played the flute. So it's a lot like, you know, there's there's holes in it. So you put your fingers over different holes to get different sounds. Mm -hmm. There's a Legend of Zelda game called the Ocarina of Time. And that's how I learned about <laughs> it because it's, you know, it's a really good game. Okay. But yeah, that like trilling part in the chauffeur, that's the Ocarina. Uh, Nick Rhodes, keyboard synthesizers, marimba, sound effects, backing vocals on Last Chance on the Stairway, uh, John Taylor bass and backing vocals, Andy Taylor, guitars and backing vocals, Roger Taylor, drums and percussion. What are the odds of three guys named Taylor being in a band and not being related? And every every single bit of press, you know, not not brothers, not related, you know. But I think some of the early press did say they were related. I'm sure they were just like, but yeah. <laughs> it's just so it's so random for three guys with the same. I know. Last name. I mean, even though Taylor is not an unusual name, it still it still boggles the mind. Andy Hamilton was the tenor sax player on Rio. And this was produced by Colin Thurston. And I got to say that 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 sax part on Rio's really sells it for me.
I mean, Andy, Andy is such a, a like, a, such a like seminal part. Cause you get, he, he wrote that, you know, he played that solo and that was something the band really envisioned and really, you know, wanted to have on there and, you know, insisted like, Hey, when we're playing this live. This is how it sounds because it's mm-hmm. like, it's an integral part of the song. I mean, you can't even, you know, early, early on and the early in the Rio tour in the U S they didn't have a saxophone player. So like Andy Taylor played uh, guitar on it. And it's so funny and it's so disorienting to hear the song without it because it's, it's just like, you know, it, it's your mission statement. It's, you know, the saxophone coming in, you know, the eighties were so big with saxophones and yeah. that is like the, one of the big iconic parts from the decade. It really is. It's uh yeah, it's, it it just really makes the song. Is, is there a theme that runs throughout this album? Is it, is there a, a unifying um, recurring theme through these different songs? You know, it's interesting. It's it's a record, and and I I delved into a little bit of this. Um, you know, as, as as I you know I did a deep dive into the lyrics to kind of try to find things because it's one of those things you focus so much on the music, you're like, what is this about? You know, Simon is known for being kind of an obscure lyricist. So, you know, he's not very straightforward. And so you're kind of, you know, there's nothing real obvious. Um, But there's a lot of, you know, songs inspired by kind of what they had seen going around the world. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of, I'm, I'm at a party and I'm not being successful. You know, there's like, it's growing up and experiencing new things. It's, you know, having optimism about where you're going next. It's a real transitional record, like you're growing up and you're having all these new experiences. You know, maybe you're going out and at a partying in an exciting club or you're seeing different countries for the first time or you're experiencing heartache for the first time or you're having you know you're 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 realizing there's more to life than what you you know grew up with so there's kind of a lot of kind of transition there you know but at the same time Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of it's open enough for interpretation that it's 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 one of those records that can kind of grow with you because as an adult you can relate to it on a different level than when you're you know 15 and feeling like no one's ever going to love you and so it's the moodiness that you can relate to yeah this is a band that i think at the age that they were when they wrote their first couple of albums they were writing lyrics that were much more mature than most bands their age they were you know there wasn't a lot of hey baby and that kind of thing it was it, it was much deeper than that it's very true. And, you know, I think that the band has said so themselves. You know, Roger Taylor has mentioned that especially. And, um, you know, and I, I think that's Simon. You know, Simon got just totally destroyed in the press for his lyrics. You read, <laughs> you know, some of the vintage press and people just tore him apart for being like, I don't know what you're saying at all. But he kind of had the last laugh because he had an interesting way with turns of phrase and he had an interesting way of, you know, using words to kind of you know emphasize a melody. And it, maybe it didn't make sense if you're reading it, but in contrast with the the music when you had it there, it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and but so that, that's a real testament to kind of the, you know, to kind of like him, you know, he was a very poetic guy, you know, he was kind of quiet. He was, you know, trying to find his way and, you know, he was very extroverted, you know, get him on stage and he was, you know, total charisma, but, you know, he was the, the introverted, you know, the classic lead singer, the introverted poet type. Mm-hmm. And so, and he has his, his lyrics like fit Duran Duran's music to a T. Like I couldn't even imagine the band with like someone else, you know, there. I mean, who else would come up with the phrase dancing on the Valentine? I don't know. And, and I'm, I don't care if I don't know what the, the artist is saying, if, as long as I think the lyrics are cool, they don't really have to mean anything to me. It's, it's fine if they do, but it's not one of those things where I'm like, hey, I don't know what you're saying. So this is your fault. This is, 
this is on you. You know, it, critics can be like that. They're like, I don't understand what you mean. So obviously it doesn't mean anything, but that's not the case. Exactly. And that's <laughs> uh, exactly people didn't understand it. And so they were like, all right, they, they, they kind of poo pooed it then. And so yeah. that, that is very common. Push back. Uh, let's talk about this iconic cover. Sorry, I'm using the small one here as we do it on the video, but uh, the cassette isn't any bigger. <laughs> um, and I haven't really ever upgraded. I need to upgrade uh, because we have everything streamable and well, I exactly. got, it, got it on my phone and all that stuff. So anyway, um, iconic cover. One of the things I think that probably helped album sales is that it was such an attractive package. And it was, uh, this is a, a a, a, an album cover rio that went to it was it was ranked number 22 on vh1's uh 50 greatest album covers in 2003. nice billboard ranked it number 21 in their countdown in 2020 so that's not even that long ago sometimes some of these older albums can fall down these charts you know as as time passes but i think that speaks well to the artwork the the cover design was, it was designed by malcolm garrett and it was uh, the artwork, the painting was by Patrick Nagel. What can you tell me about this artwork? I know that Patrick went in with like two ideas and this is the one they fell in love with. I mean, it, it's so funny because like when you think about it, you can't separate the album from the, the painting. And this is, this is Patrick Nagel. He um, did a lot of very evocative paintings for Playboy and and, some, and they had kind of you know, after this album it, it was kind of growing in the fine art world and so he did like they commissioned him to do a couple paintings and this is the one they chose the other one ended up on the single cover um I think of Japan maybe but it was you know you look at it and it's just it's 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 perfect it's it's real like she embodies the what the album is about she's kind of mysterious she's kind of mm -hmm. mischievous and she's you know she's looking at you and like yeah all right, I want to listen to this record um, the coolest thing is, so, you know, Malcolm Garrett, who is a total genius, you know, he worked with Buzz Cox, like if you just look up on um, Discogs, everything he worked with, like he had a very distinctive graphic design approach and really meshed well with kind of Duran Duran because they kind of had a, you know, punkish sort of edge. So he basically had this painting and it was like, okay, um, do something with it. And, you know, and he, as he told me, um, I was lucky enough to interview him for the book. He's like, I could have just slapped the painting on and that would have been it. But he's like, I had to do some other things. So he basically envisioned it like the album was, the album art was like a cigar box. So like, if you see the little thing at the, like the lower kind of right corner, mm -hmm. it, it's like when you like slide, like slice open a cigar box and you're taking the record out and it's like, it's a cigar. And so if you look at it, all the iconography and kind of all the fonts and stuff like that, it, it, it's like you're unwrapping something. And I just, I just, you know, he told me that I never heard that before. And I was like, this is just, it's such a brilliant way of kind of looking at it because, you know, it's, it's all, uh, you know, the, the record is supposed to signal like luxury and aspiration and something, you know, that you're hoping and dreaming for. And it's like, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not um, a smoker, but I know that, you know, it's like, it's relaxation or can open up a cigar box. Mm -hmm. So I just love that. I thought that was cool. Yeah, there is something luxurious about this album in terms of if you if you think about it, I don't have any idea how what the number is, but the number of sequenced keyboard parts that Nick Rhodes uses throughout this album, for example, it's got to be very, very high. I think so. And, you know, the, the genius of it is, I think, I, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, they, they recorded Air Studios in London, which had multiple tracks. You know, I think it was 24 tracks. And mm -hmm. so they basically had all the space to work with. So, and they, they you know, took every bit of it. Um, but the coolest thing is, is that they, 
you know, it, it doesn't feel like there's anything wasted. Like, you know, I mean, you and I have probably listened to records where it's just like, oh my God, there's just too much going on and it's messy and muddy and the way it's mixed and the way it's kind of put together, you know, it's just every little bit, every little sound makes sense. You listen to it on headphones and you can hear things, you know, that maybe pop out in the mix and it's just, it, it's, you know, it, there's nothing gratuitous there. And, you know, and so I think that's also kind of a, a testament to, um, you know, the music and the songs, you know, the songs can work as these, you know, fully finished things, but they can also work, you know, stripped down. So the, the bones of the song are really good. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought that up about the, the headphones, because I think it's easy if you're listening to this in the background of doing something else, you're just hearing synth pop rock, you're not really getting the layers and the textures that are in the songs. There's yeah. there's a lot there that that's going on below the surface that you wouldn't necessarily notice, like if you're just stick your phone on the counter and you're doing dishes or something. Exactly. Yeah. And you can work like that if you want it. You know, it's one mm -hmm. of those records you can kind of put on and it's, you know, really kind of, you know, relaxing and fun to listen to. But you can also enjoy it as like from an audiophile standpoint, yeah. um, which, which is cool, too. So nine tracks and how many of these nine were singles? A lot of them. Yeah. You know, so we had, uh, you know, the three main ones. Um, at Rio, Save a Prayer, and Hungry Like the Wolf. Those aren't in the order. I just, I just said the three. Um, my Own Way was actually a single too, but it was a single uh, in a different form. You know, so this is, you know, Duran Duran is notorious, no pun intended, you know, for having remixes and different things. And so My Own Way was a single in November of 81, but it was totally different. It had disco strings and it was like, had, it bore no resemblance to how this kind of ended up on the record. And yeah. so, you know, so they, you know, and I think, I think the band were kind of like, oh, they, they didn't really like how it turned out. So they mm -hmm. kind of revisited it and, you know, worked it back up and realized it in a way. And I think that works. And I think the version on the record is really good too. So there's uh, music videos for those four. Um, there's also a music video for Lonely in Your Nightmare um, and The Chauffeur. So, I mean, the thing is, is that they ended up having, you know, music videos for what, what was that? That's six, like six of the nine songs. Yeah. So they, they, you know, not everything was a single, but, you know, everything, uh, nearly everything was a video. The, the weird thing also about Rio is that Save a Prayer wasn't actually a single in the U.S. until 1985. <laughs> which is just like ridiculous. It was yeah. a single in the UK. It was a hit. People already liked it. And then, you know, by the 1985, the power station was already doing things and, you know, save a prayer on the charts. So just one of those weird, weird, you know, record label eighties quirks. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So a lot of singles starts off with Rio, the title track, obviously it, it, an iconic video, but then again, all their videos were very iconic in terms of exotic locations, uh, very um, 
stylized. They're, they're, they had a lot of sense of, of fashion and art and, and they used all of the, like every bit of that came out in their videos. That's hundred percent true. And, uh, you know, and it's, but when you, when you compare uh, what their videos were compared to what everyone else was doing at the time, it was just so different. It was like night and day. It was just, they were so heads and tails above everyone else. You know, and part of that was also Simon who had kind of an acting background. So he kind of knew his way around a camera and was just really kind of a natural in front of it too. So, you know, the, you had this front man who was like, yeah, I'm okay with being on camera. That's cool. You know, who knew, uh, you know, kind of how to act you know, gold, because I mean, you, you, uh, you know, you well know so many of these musicians in the early eighties were just like shoved in front of a camera and say, all right, you need to make a music video. Like, you know, they're used to playing live they're, They didn't sign up for this. <laughs> so, you know, but Duran Duran really, you know, they understood the power of video and, and image and aesthetics pretty early on. Yeah. Michael Sadler of Saga was to, I asked him about becoming a video star and he was like, well, they're just going to film us you know playing the song but they're also going to tell a story throughout this and they're like what what yeah. <laughs> what is that what am i doing um so yeah it, it was a little took took some of these musicians by surprise and, and some handled it better than others and some chose not to handle it at all uh but rio such a, a great song for me i think i liked it better than hungry like the wolf it's probably my favorite up-tempo song on the album yeah, you know, I, I, you can't not love Hungry Like the Wolf. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, that is one of like the iconic 80s singles. I, I'm the type that I just, I can't choose, you know, like depending mm -hmm. on the day, uh, you know, everyone's like, what's your favorite song? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I like, I like them all, you know. I'm sure you so, get that all the time. You probably, because I'm, you wrote this book, you probably exactly. get asked that daily. <laughs> and, you know, and, and most days it's actually new religion. I, I really, really came to love that song from doing this book. You know, I always knew it, of course, but I just really came to appreciate it more, you know, just yeah. musically and lyrically. And, you know, the band has consistently still plays that live. You know, they played it live before the pandemic on some of the like the early 2019 shows. So like it clearly, you know, still means something to them too. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I was like, oh, there's, there's something to the song. So it's, it, it's, so it's kind of the sleeper, my, my sleeper favorite. I'll bring my time and in, seagulls gather on the wind. too that's one of those songs you know they rarely played it live after kind of the rio era and you know there's a there, there is a video for it um mm -hmm. but it, it, it's just it's a beautiful song and it's sort of you know the other kind of hidden gem but i like the moody music so yeah i think if i, I and i actually have never had the pleasure of seeing them live but if i did uh, other than some concert videos but if i did i think i would be disappointed for every rio song that wasn't played it was like oh they didn't do <laughs> Yeah, they didn't do Last Chance on the Stairway or they didn't do whatever, because there's this is a 10 out of 10 album. It's yeah. uh, 
every song is a, is a gem. Uh, Rio went to number five here in the U.S. on the mainstream rock charts, number 14 in the Hot 100. Then you got My Own Way. And I have to say that the 2009 remix that's on Spotify, I believe sounds different to my ears in the the Between Sixth and Broadway section sounds different. Like they emphasize different parts to me. They, you know, that's one of the songs. So it's, it's funny because we talk about, you know, there's different mixes of Hungry Like the Wolf. When you look at this record, there are literally different mixes for almost every single song. Like there is, um, like I have to almost look this up. So there is so much different versions that were used on different um like CD pressings that were like mm -hmm. only ended up like I think it actually is my is it my own way so there is there's one that is literally only on that was only on CD that was like it was there was a different version used on the CD version of Rio uh, that was never on the vinyl version and so for years and years and years let me see which one it is uh where is that that's not it uh, the hold back the rain. So there, whatever the version of hold back the rain that was used for the original CD master, it's not the same one on the UK vinyl LP. So if you have the, like one of the early, early CDs, there's like a totally different mix. And I got the CD and I'm sitting there and I, I a beat it. I'm like, this is completely different. So there's like different versions of even the songs, you know, like lonely in your nightmare has different versions. Like so, I, I mean, there, there's Rio that you have, you know, every version of Rio is almost kind of slightly different. It's, it's, it's completely wild. That has to be really tough on people with OCD. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I have to have every single one of these and there's so many. Um, it's 100%. And, you know, there's different remixes and there's things floating around. Like there's one at the very, very end on streaming on the 2009 uh, reissue. And I think I asked Nick Rhodes, I'm like, where is that from? He's like, I'm, I'm not sure. There's a lot going on. There's a lot floating around. So, I mean, there's just, it's just hard to keep track of. Um, there's a really good uh, um, website called durancompilations.com. Mm -hmm. And their kind of breakdown of Rio is just really, really invaluable in terms of kind of showing like the different versions and where they are and where they ended up and things like that, because you almost need to have like, like double the amount of Rios that I have to try to get everything like it's 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 daunting. Yeah. And it's good. You have sites like Discogs that'll tell you all the different um, catalog numbers yes. of these and things like that. So that's helpful. So you, uh, Lonely in Your Nightmare is track three. Good song. You already talked about that. I know you got it in your head. I've seen that look before. You built your refuge, tells you captive all the same. Very underrated, a little under the radar, moody song. Hungry Like the Wolf was a major hit. And when my I wrote down one word when I listened to Hungry Like the Wolf today to get ready for this. I wrote sequencers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Absolutely. 
a tremendous job by uh, Nick to just come up with these little patterns and then to figure out how they fit together. And and it's so fun too because when you uh, you know when you listen to kind of the final studio version and then you listen to kind of live versions they did you know around the Rio tour in '82 and then '84 and then even now like the song has like evolved so much over the years even like that they've played so many different even live versions of Hungry Like the Wolf they've had like glammy ones they've had kind of unplugged ones like it's 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 very cool but I I like the one where they have kind of the percolating you know sequencer in, in the beginning like that's kind of like the early mm -hmm. early one and there's something very charming about that yeah and the hungry like the wolf i mean i don't know who thinks of these things but let's have let's have nick's girlfriend laugh at the beginning yeah. and then scream at the end <laughs> i don't know how you come up with that and say yeah that would you know would be you know what this song needs is a laugh at the beginning you know what this song needs is is these moans you know as the as the climax of the song is here to go along with it and it was it just everything about it worked and yeah. i'm sure it was really one of those songs that when it get, got played on pop radio and, and kids were listening to that in a room, parents walking by the door heard that we were like, wait a minute, what's going on in here? That's exactly it. And it's like, and that, that's kind of a sign of their creativity. It's like, who else would think of that? Who else would be like, oh, this is great. This is totally, you know, this will totally make the song. You know, it's just mm -hmm. a very indicative of, you know, how creative they were and how like, let's try this, let's see how it works. And it totally worked. Yeah, because it sounds on the surface like if you just brought that idea in off the street, you go, oh, you know, it would be good. And then you say that and people go, that sounds really cheesy. <laughs> but it does. It, it really works well. And it's it's hard to imagine the song without those those yeah. elements now. Uh, it was a number one Billboard top rock track. It was number three on the Hot 100, went to number one in Canada. So obviously a very beloved song um, in North America. And uh, yeah, Hungry Like the Wolf, like you said, can't you can't uh, go wrong with that. Hold Back the Rain. And I mean, I think this whole entire tracks five through nine, most of these weren't huge hits, but they were such solid songs. And it's probably why I like them so much is because they were they were not as ubiquitous as the other, you know, the hit singles. But Hold Back the Rain, New Religion, Last Chance on the Stairway, just all fun songs. That's exactly it. You know, I mean, when, when you, uh, it, it is, you know, you set up as a 10 out of 10 record and that's completely it. You know, there's no, you know, bad song on the record. There's nothing that you're like, oh, I have to skip this. It's very well sequenced. And you can tell that the band really worked hard on sequencing it. And it, it's just, you know, it just kind of all flows. There's different moods. You know, I think the, the first half is kind of the upbeat party side and the side two is kind of the moody come down you know you're kind of brooding a little bit so yeah. it's even kind of you know thematically kind of moody so it's just you know it's just a really well you know it it, it understood that albums were pieces of art and you know that, that you needed to kind of have a complete statement and they, they really did that well yeah it's it's funny too because the those first those last tracks i just mentioned are, are all you know sort of up-tempo songs and then you you come down with save a prayer and the chauffeur which are more atmospheric songs and and even cinematic and it leaves you on a note i think where you go at the at your you get done listening to that second side and you go wow i need to hear that again because it <laughs> takes you on this it takes you on this sort of journey that's there's there's peaks and valleys and at the end you get to this this bottom point and you go and not that the music's worse than than the other uh music but it's that you get to that that bottom point you go it's like wanting to get on the roller coaster again 
Very, very true. And, you know, I think that that listenability, you know, after writing a book, you know, you would think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of this record, but I'm not tired of the record. You know, I finished the book and I'm like, I still want to listen to this record. I'll still listen to it now. You know, that that's a real testament to a record that stands the test of time, that you're not tired of it. You spent yeah. a year and a half working on something and you're like, OK, I don't hate it. How many times a day do you think you listened to the album while you were writing this? Oh, I mean, it was hard because I was doing transcribing too. I, mm. I couldn't even tell you. I'd have to look at my iTunes to see if they kept the, uh, <laughs> I don't know if they kept the spin counts. I'd have to look. Yeah. Uh, I imagine Matt heard it quite a bit while you were working on the book. He doesn't mind though. Yeah, you know, literally yeah. my, my office is on the top of the house and he he works elsewhere, um, you know, but he loves Duran Duran too. Yes. So I mean, that, that's, you know, the nice thing is that, you know, there's never any like, oh, you're listening to Duran Duran again. He'd be like, cool. This is great. Sounds good. So Duran Duran today, obviously they just came out new album in 2021. Where do you, <laughs> where do you see their, their musical journey having having gone from the beginning from the self-titled Duran Duran album in Rio at the beginning to now where what what is sort of the the trajectory that you've seen from them I mean you know like a lot of bands you know who've stayed together for over 40 years um you know it, I mean it, it's kind of like a relationship they after Rio they really kind of was kind of an upward trajectory they released Seven of the Ragged Tiger in the end of 83 did a massive tour in America, the Single Silver Tour, which was their kind of their first big return since like really, really taking off. And so it was huge. Um, and then the mid 80s, they kind of they sponsored into Arcadia and the power station. And, mm -hmm. and, and some of them came back together. You know, Roger and Andy left the band. And so it was just the, the three people, uh, Simon, Nick and uh, John left for Notorious. Um, the kind of, you know, they were kind of finding their footing, trying to figure out we're growing up, you know, what, what are we now? And so they did some, you know, pretty contemporary records that I think have actually held up, you know, stood the test of time. You know, I think mm -hmm. Big Thing and uh, Notorious especially have really, um, you know, people have really come around to those. You know, they were popular, they were popular back then, but I think people are, are really appreciating them again now. Um, you know, and, and things, you know, kind of ebbed in the, and with Liberty in the early nineties, things were just not in a good place, but mm -hmm. they came back with a wedding album in early in, in 1993. And that really with ordinary world. And that just, you know, shot the reputation right back up. They were back to playing arenas and things like that in America. And then, you know, they had some ebbs again, you know, they had, uh, you know, in the, in the late nineties, they weren't playing as bigger venues. They had Bedazzleland, um, which I loved that that's kind of a more electronic record, but I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, so they did, then, then they did the reunion with, with Andy and Roger in the two thousands for a little bit. And again, very successful. And, you know, even though Andy and Andy ended up leaving the band again, um, they've really kind of maintained that level. And so they've really been playing like, um, you know, arenas and sheds and stuff like that. Yeah. I most people I know they're Duran Duran fans back in the day. They're either Power Station people or they're Arcadia people. Do you gravitate towards one over the other? Why not both? I mean, I I like I tend to like Arcadia a little bit more, but I like Power Station too. Just because I really Arcadia is kind of I, I really like kind of synthesizer based music and mm -hmm. it's kind of moody and kind of proggy a little bit, and so I think Arcadia is probably my favorite. But like just the way Andy and and John really kind of fulfilled like okay we want to be rockers you know in in the power station and yeah. they got to work with Bernard and they got to work with Robert Palmer and so like that was just kind of you could tell that they were they were so thrilled to be doing that yeah. so I think it was you know it was still good.
the wedding album is funny that you mentioned their sort of comeback with the wedding album because it's it, they used to play that they used to play duran duran songs from that album specifically on the alt rock stations yeah like, wow 100%. it's like this is a this is a pop rock band that was a top 40 band and now they're on the alt rock station it was it was like a complete reinvention it but they, the same thing happened with thomas dolby around that time too with the uh, you know some of his stuff but uh astronauts and heretics i think was the album that he had out at the I time love you so. goodbye great yeah. song yeah fantastic song i was gonna say i i that's you know that was my introduction to both those artists would be yeah. alternative rock it's funny how new wave really just uh <laughs> turned into alternative rock for some reason you know the yeah. 90s now i don't know what it is it's just it's just cool yeah i don't even know what alt rock is anymore <laughs> i don't know it doesn't matter it's it's just all about music yeah. It's all about what you like. It's all about what's good. And um, maybe we don't have to put so many labels on stuff. I, I I, cannot disagree. Yeah. So the book is just called Rio by Annie Zaleski. It's 33 and a third. Where can folks get, I know they can get it everywhere, but I want to hear it from you. Where Where would you like people to buy your book? Um, I mean, wherever you can, um, you know, it's available at Amazon. Um, my publisher is Bloomsbury and the book is available there bookshop.org, I believe. Um, it's basically, that's kind of like a place where you can order it from there and they'll get it from indie stores. Mm -hmm. um, some independent bookstores too um, are carrying it as long as it's, you know, with supply chain has been kind of difficult here and there, but I know like uh, Max Bax in Cleveland, Ohio um, has autograph copies actually, which is cool. And so I know they're one store that has some in stock, um, but you know, wherever you can find it, I'm, I'm just happy. I just want people to read it. Do you have a website? I do. It's just AnnieZ.com. And uh, it's basically been a repository for book stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have designs on, you know, adding links to some of my writing and things like that. But um, all of that comes with time. As people know, trying to build a website, you know, you need like two days that, you know, none of us as adults have just to sit down and do that. <laughs> Yeah, just to map it out, not even to well, exactly. put it together. Yeah. You know, I just use like WordPress. I'm not doing anything fancy. So yeah, that's that's it's so nice to have things like that these days that we can let someone else do the heavy lifting and you just do a you know just you put in your your input and your what words you want and what headers you want and all that. It's magic. I, I hand-coded my early website, so yes, 100. <laughs> no, my my first website was a. Uh, I basically took the files from my the, the the job that I had from their work website, and then I just completely changed everything, like all the colors and all the the textures and stuff. And but it was the same exact website. He just used their code. <laughs> you, you borrow the code. I, I mean, that's I how you learn, right? That's yeah. how you figured out. You're like, I like how that website looks. Let's look at the source code. Let's figure out how I can do that. Yeah, it's like, well, they already have all the buttons where I want them, and that kind of thing so exactly yeah it's great so what's next for you who are you gonna write um, about next you know i i have a couple things kind of in the works um i'm working on a manuscript on the b-52s for university of texas press um why they matter and so that's that's sort of going to be my uh, next focus great great look forward to that do you have social you want people to follow you on you can follow me on twitter at, at annie zaleski i i tend to post a lot of random music stuff I love random music stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you post a lot of good articles. You retweet like a lot of good things to, to go and read. So 
And it's been really great fun uh, talking to you about Duran Duran, about your book. This was a great read. I recommend it for everybody. Do you have other 33 and a third books that you've read that you would recommend to others? Oh, man, that's a good question. I actually, let me look here. I like the Neutral Milk Hotel one. Um, that one is actually really, really good. I have a whole stack, actually, that I bought to read because, um, you know, I was like, oh, I wrote a 33 and a third. And so I've been buying them up. The one on actually Slayer's Rain and Blood is really good. Um, and granted, that's written by a friend of mine. Um, but he put in like a ton of research on it, you know, and I, I'm not you know, I'm not the biggest Slayer fan, but I had such an appreciation for the band of that record after I was done reading it, which I think is a testament to kind of how the book is. And so that's another one I really like. Um, I have the recent one on Pearl Jam's verses that I've been reading um, that I have to read, which is good. And there's one actually coming on George Michael's Faith in March, May, which is very exciting. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, great, great stuff. Um, I. You know, like you, I, I, if I have a good story to read about a musician, it doesn't even matter if I like the musician. Like I, I'll watch documentaries on just about any musician. Like I don't even like their music, but I want to see what they're about. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's and when someone kind of tells a good story and does it in a way that maybe they have good archival footage or things like that, you know, it, it, it kind of piques your interest. So I completely relate to that. And I agree. All right. Well, we're looking forward to more from you and uh, look forward to reading your stuff. And thank you so much for your time. And, and thanks for being on the show. Yeah, this is really fun. Thank you for having me. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media at Mike's Records on Twitter and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash michaelsrecordcollection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.